It's very easy, isn't it, to create and enjoy a community of people, of like-minded people, whether that could be, you know, a sports club, uh, you know, an art class or something like that, a, a weekly gathering of mums in a coffee shop, or just a bunch of mates after work at a particular bar on a particular night for a drink, it becomes a little thing that you do. And we join such groups uh, because we enjoy the company of others. There's fun to be had. And, uh, and gathering for no purpose other than just a quick cafe latte or whatever you drink, uh, you know, and have a good laugh, that's a wonderful thing. There's no greater purpose or aim that is necessary. Now, of course, when we gather as a church, our community has greater aims, a greater purpose than enjoying the company of others, but I do hope we do that, um, just so we're clear. I wonder how quickly, though, we think we can lose sight of why we are here. How quickly can we forget what motivates us to be here and what motivates us as we leave here as well. How quickly can we forget how we to view others as well as ourselves as a church and individually? One of the great dangers, I think, of, of any gathering or community of people is in its desire to serve and to love the gathered people. It can very quickly become quite exclusive and quite insular. And sadly, churches are not immune to such tendencies. If we begin to forget the needs of others around us, if we find ourselves looking so inwardly, caring for one another, yes, and that's a wonderful and a good thing. But if we never look out, if we neglect the physical and especially the spiritual uh, needs of the thousands who aren't gathered here, I think it would be fair to ask, if we should be considered a church at all. This insular tendency is most easily slipped into, I guess, when our lives are perhaps more difficult. For those are the times, of course, where we need to come together and to support one another, and it's right, we must do that. But at the same time, we must not forget every other reason for which we gather. We must not neglect the other ministries and biblical responsibilities that we have as a gathering of God's people in this place. And in the first part of our passage today, Paul is once again, yes, he's defending his own ministry to the church in Corinth. And there's nothing new there. This whole letter has been a lot about him defending his ministry, hasn't it, to those people there in that church in Corinth. But in defending himself here, Paul exposes, if you like, Two motivations that drive him to keep going. To, uh, to keep going despite the, the difficulties of his life, the afflictions, the sufferings that we've seen. But also to keep going in making Christ known, in looking out to the people around. Avoiding that insular tendency that he may have, as well as I guess all of us will too. And Paul lives this utterly radical life for God. But what drives him? Two opposites, we will see in these few verses that we're going to look at today. Uh, verse uh, 11 to 15, we see what many call two paradoxes that motivate his ministry. They seem opposing. Some describe it as a kind of a dynamic tension in Paul's life and ministry. And there's so much for us to learn here, I think. 
Because we see through Paul his motivations for ministry and life. And I guess the prayer as we begin is that we should have these same motivations too. To keep us from becoming too focused on ourselves. So let's look at them. Our first point on your sheets there. Let's look at the motivations for ministry. Paul was motivated, as I said, to a seeming opposing paradoxical, opposing forces. And the first one is clear, it's fear. His first motivating force in his life was fear. And it comes from uh, that post-resurrection judgment that he described at the end of last week's passage. Why don't you flip back one verse to verse 10 at the end of our last week's passage. Have a look at that. He says this. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So that each of us may receive what is due to us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Paul felt a huge weight. He feared the day when he would meet Christ face to face at judgment, where he would have to give an account of his life, what he had done in service of God. Now this judgment that he speaks of there in verse 10 is not the judgment that, uh, if you like, saves us for heaven. If we have trusted Jesus' work on the cross, then we, like him, will be raised to eternal life and glory. The judgment, uh, our God-ignoring uh, God lives, uh, has de- the judgment that our God-ignoring lives deserve has been dealt with. It has been done on the cross by what Jesus has achieved. But we will one day have to give an account of how we have lived in response to what Jesus has done on the cross. Our heavenly reward, our eternal glory, we've seen in the previous uh, verses, uh, will be judged at that point, according to our lives now. And this is what Paul is speaking of in verse 10. And he felt this huge weight of responsibility because he was an apostle. He would, therefore, much was expected of him. Likewise, if you're a leader here today, I hope you realise James 3.1 warns us, doesn't it, that leaders, teachers within the church will be judged more strictly. But look how the fear motivated Paul. Look at down at verse 11 with me. Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We see this fear being worked out in Paul's life and ministry. Paul was in absolute fearful awe of this judgment to come, to stand in the radiant presence of Christ, seeing his beauty and his holiness face to face. Can you imagine it? Paul could. Paul wasn't in denial about what that would be like. He wasn't all kind of pally and sort of friendly with God. He was in absolute awe of God. He knew that one day he would probably bow and fall to his knees, overwhelmed, utterly humbled in the presence of Christ. And at that moment he would have to give an account of how he used his life in response to what Jesus had done on the cross. And this fear and awe of God's justice drove him to persuade others we see here. That is, his future motivated his present. And we see this elsewhere. Luke, Luke in his account uh, in, in the book of Acts, 
continually speaks of Paul wherever he went. He tried to persuade others again and again and again. We see that fear being worked out in him trying to persuade others of the glories of Christ. But what does that really look like? Was Paul in reality not too dissimilar to those he's actually been criticising in the Corinthian church? Those super apostles which we'll come to with their eloquence and rhetorical brilliance. After all, in 1 Corinthians, if you had a look back, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. In the beginning of 1 Corinthians, he contrasts himself with these teachers that infiltrated the church in Corinth. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 3 and 4. And he says there, I came to you in weakness and with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words. So why now in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is Paul suggesting that his persuasion, well that's a legitimate persuasion. Why is he saying that? Since then what we know, uh, we know that what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade others, Paul says here. Now Paul isn't suggesting that all forms of persuasion are wrong. Paul is more concerned about the outcome and the means of the persuasion he uses. He was persuading people uh, of the gospel of Jesus Christ, not for his benefit, not for him to look any better, rather so that they might trust Christ. So therefore, uh, his persuasion had, if you like, a virtuous outcome. Secondly, he was persuading people of the gospel. How? With a great sense of integrity to what he was doing. He wasn't trying to manipulate people. Rather, he was trying to convince them, persuade them of the glories of the Lord Jesus. So his, his persuasion had like a virtuous means as well. It wasn't manipulative. There is no doubt that Paul trying to persuade someone about the Lord Jesus Christ. I would guess it was a fairly intense meeting. Can you imagine it? Paul against you, so I'm going to try and persuade you of this truth. You'd think it would be quite intense. But Paul, unlike the super apostles, persuaded with a clear conscience. Hence the end of verse 11. Look at it. What we are is plain to God. He's got nothing to hide. And I hope it is also plain to your conscience, to the Corinthian church. I've done this with integrity, he's saying. There's a transparency to his ministry before God and before the church. Now, the defence of his integrity continues down into verse 12. Have a look at it there. Uh, We're not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us. So that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. Now, literally what he's doing here is he's criticising those who, in the literal sense, it would be those who boast about the face. Those who too take pride in what is outward, what is in scene. And the super apostles, these teachers that have infiltrated the church in Corinth, they were all about the outward. What could be seen in their ministry, in their lives and in others. And Paul stood in a line of God's leaders, going right back to 1 Samuel. I don't know if you remember this, a few years ago we looked at this in 1 Samuel 16, where God reminded Samuel... That although people look at the outward appearance, where does God look in his leaders and his people? He looks to the heart. And Paul stood in a long line. Paul is teaching the Corinthian church what they are to look for in their leaders. Not just on surface things. 
to their hearts. He wanted a church to be proud of him, of course in the right way, to see that he was motivated to make Christ known. And he wanted the church, quite simply, to be able to discern a good leader from a bad leader, in a sense. To discern godly leaders with gospel hearts against shallow leaders, however impressive and they seemed outwardly. Verse 13 adds to that personal defence. He says, look, if we were out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you, he says. Paul had continually had to defend himself with the accusation saying, this guy's out of his mind. So zealous was he to make Christ known wherever he went. People said, this guy's crazy. When he stood in front of um, a number of councils at the end of Acts, Acts 26, he had to defend himself like this. He said, I'm not mad. Yes, he was zealous. He had boundless energy to make Christ known. It didn't matter how hard his life was. If he appeared out of his mind, he's saying here, it was for God. And that we come here every Sunday, that we support others around the world to make Christ known. That we invite friends to, hey, do you want to read the Bible with me? Or do you want to come to a service at Easter? To many of people out there, we seem mad too. I don't know if you've picked up on that yet. But we aren't mad, and nor is Paul. As he said, if we are in our right mind, it is for you, he says. Paul was preaching the gospel. And he was in his right mind to do so because it was for the people of Corinth, the church in Corinth. He preached the gospel of Jesus to them and he did so motivated rightly by the fear of the account that he would one day have to give before Christ of how he used his life. Paul's first motivation in his ministry in his life was fear. He was in absolute awe of God and he hadn't made God into some kind of cuddly, benevolent grandfather figure. I wonder how you view God and how he motivates you in your ministry in making Christ known to your friends. Have you sanitised God slightly? Have you made him just a little bit too small? You see, if we mould God into kind of a deity of our liking and convenience, Rather than seeing him clearly for who he is through his revelation of himself, the Bible, surely we will lose sight of the awe and the fear that we should have when we one day will stand in the presence of God. Did you ever fear your school teachers? Did you fear their authority, their judgment? You know, the fact that they could just dish out a detention for a tie that was half an inch too short. The fact that one day that they would write your report and your parents would really hear what you were like. That fear motivated us, didn't it, to get the work done. How much more with the judgment to come before a perfect and holy God then? How much more should we be motivated? So Paul was motivated clearly by uh, the fear of God to persuade others and he did so with a godly integrity. That's what he's showing here. But these, as I said, there are two seemingly paradoxical um, tensions, motivations in Paul's life and ministry. First is fear, yes. Second is love. Verse 14 and 15. Now, the love that Paul speaks of is made clear in verse 14. Look at it, it's very clear. For Christ's love 
compels us. Oh, of course, it's the love of Christ that's uh, demonstrated supremely as death that motivates Paul here. And that word compels is a lovely word. It literally means to hem in. It's a control word. Christ's love controls his life and helps him to persuade others to, and makes, uh, to make Jesus known. But the ground of this compelling love comes at the end of verse 14. Look at it. Because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. It's a funny phrase, isn't it? One died for all and therefore all died. One died for all, that's pretty easy. Christ died as a representative of the one for those who would put their trust in him. But when by faith we are united to Christ, it is as if we have died with him. Paul puts it like this elsewhere as well, but he, he, he does so to show us the utter liberation and transformation that occurs when Christ dies on the cross. Christ dies our death. <coughs> the death that we deserve. The justice that we deserve. So we who have put our faith in Jesus, that old self, has literally died on a cross. This is the extent of Christ's love for each of us. He was willing to take on himself all the justice, all the anger of God that we deserve. And it is this overwhelming love that was this other great motivational power in Paul's life and ministry. Fear and love. They seem like opposites in many ways. Paradoxical tensions that motivated every moment of Paul's life. Fear and love. Oh, the love. What, what that looked like for Paul practically is made clear. Look at verse 15. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Do you find that there's so many things in our lives that draw us to live for ourselves? Do you find that? Our possessions, our passions, maybe our appetites as well. They're like leeches sucking out any desire to live for anyone other than ourselves, aren't they? It's so easy, isn't it, for things like our possessions and our passions to make us turn in on ourselves. As a result, what happens? They make us feel so small, don't we? And so insecure. Because we always want more of them. We get consumed by having a little bit more than others around us or more than the person that we know down the road. Sadly, before God, therefore, we become utterly useless. And Paul is reminding us here that Christ died our death to keep us from living for ourselves. He saved us to live for him. So we're saved from doing things that lead to death. We don't have to live that way anymore. We have a greater purpose now. And that is to live and serve God in ways that bring life. Life eternal to those around us as we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. So we live for Christ, you see, no longer for ourselves. We have this new freedom and motivated, yes, by a fear, but also a love. And it is so liberating. 
We don't have to believe the lie that perhaps the promotion at work or the, the salary rise will, you know, will fulfil us in, in any way. Yes, it might do to an extent, but it never does properly, does it? We've been liberated from that. And like Paul, I pray we'll be motivated by both the fear of God and the love of God. And if you underestimate either, you'll be totally ineffective, consumed by yourself and what you can achieve and what you can accumulate and experience now. Oh, that's true for us individually, but it can be equally true for us as a church. We must be motivated by the fear of God and the love of God to make the gospel known. It's that great old hymn says, we sang it a couple of weeks ago, you know, facing a task unfinished. Have you seen how big the task is out there? Unnumbered souls are dying, that hymn says, and pass into the night. And it warns us, we must wake from lethargy. Fear and love, may they motivate us to take the saving good news of Jesus out and not be some insular, comfortable club. So we've seen motivations for ministry. Secondly, let's see the scope of ministry in verse 16 and 17, these last couple of verses. The love of Christ has not only become the motivating power of Paul's life, but he continues now to show us how Christ's love, in a sense, has transformed every part of his life, his outlook, not just the inward, but the everything. As he looks out into life. Paul shows us these implications in a very practical way. Look, of how he simply views people around him. As he says, verse 16, look at it, how he looks at people. So from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Now let me just explain the second part of that first. Remember Paul, he was kind of previously the, kind of the Pharisee of the Pharisees, wasn't he really? Which meant he judged everyone from a very worldly point of view. Literally, uh, the, the, the verse would read, according to the flesh. What he could see on the outside. And Paul admits that, doesn't he, at verse, eight, at verse 16. He, this is how we viewed Jesus previously. You see, to Paul the Pharisee, Jesus was just this kind of messianic pretender, a bit of a charlatan. So, and, and got exactly as he deserved, as he was strung up on a cross. That's how Paul would have viewed Jesus to begin with. That shameful and painful death was exactly what he deserved. And he would go even further, in fact, because he knew his Lord. Deuteronomy 21 would say, it does say, that anyone who was hung on a pole was cursed by God. Paul crossed the same word and he would have said, well, Jesus was cursed by God. That's how the Pharisees viewed him. And that's how Paul would have viewed Jesus. It's really ironic though, isn't it? Think about how Paul is being viewed now himself. He's now suffering in Corinth. He was weak by appearance and speech. He constantly afflicted. We've seen his life felt like a daily death. Remember the triumphal procession in Christ in chapter 2? It was such was his suffering. It was enormous. People thought, what? He must be the apostolic pretender, the charlatan. Do you see the parallels? Slightly ironic. Paul rejected Jesus because he looked at the flesh, the outside, the surface, and Paul, now Paul was being rejected by Corinth, the church that he had established, because why? They were looking just at the surface, the outside. But Paul had been transformed 
His heart and his life, his thinking, his sight now had been totally transformed by the work of Christ and his spirit and his life. He now understood verse 14. That is, that he had died with Christ. He understood that and what it meant. And therefore he no longer viewed people with that worldly view. Oh, he looked deeper. Beyond the surface. Oh, yeah. I guess all of your minds are worrying at the moment. You think, the applications are ridiculous, aren't they, in a culture in which we live in? Uh, the countercultural scope of the gospel you know, is, is enormous here because we are no longer to be regarding people by the externals. It's the total opposite of our world around us, isn't it? What we look like, how things appear, the optics of a situation... The externals dominate everywhere, don't they, in our world? I, I, I don't know if you saw it on the news when, you know, when Theresa May, uh, the Prime Minister, went to go see uh, Nicola Sturgeon up in Scotland uh, it was a week or so ago, wasn't it? Another Scottish referendum chatting and you know, all that kind of stuff. The news was dominated by what? What they wore, how they sat uncomfortably together on a sofa, you know, how they glanced at each other, glared probably better, you know, the lack of smiles. It was all the externals. The way we look is not far off a religion for many, is it? How do we define someone doing well? Have you ever thought about that? What, what is a good woman? What is a good man? The criteria used to define what is good today is so often defined and determined by the externals. Image is everything, isn't it? Likewise, you think about you know, the, the whole kind of categories that come beyond that of being famous. Being famous is the kind of the outworking of the religion of looks, isn't it, really? And you can be famous, but the, the slight irony is that you can be infamous as well. It doesn't really matter, does it? It doesn't matter whether you, what you've done. As long as you're on there, as long as you're out there on the tabloids, you know, being tweeted and Instagrammed and all that kind of stuff, it doesn't matter. Where does this regard from a worldly point of view challenge us, though? Because I doubt many of us really kind of, you know, we're not out there in the tabloids and so on. That's not us, I guess. We may not be at the gym, crash dieting, spending all we have on our appearance. Maybe not. But there'll be other things, won't there? Our wealth, our property, perhaps our education, how we view others. Do you go to that school, really? Not, not that school. Hmm. Did you go to that university? Not, not that university. Okay. Are you living that postcode? Do you? Really? Not, not that? Okay. Family background. You see, all these things. I wonder how we view those around us. I wonder how we even view ourselves. <coughs> these distinctions were put away, though, when Christ died on the cross. We must not try to revive them. Christian ministry is not immune to this, but let me tell you, it's very sadly not. I remember being in a meeting and asking a group of ministers if they would allow C.H. Spurgeon to preach at their conference. Now, C.H. Spurgeon died 200 odd years ago, uh, but I was just playing a little bit of a kind of devil's advocate at this point. I said, would you allow C.H. Spurgeon to preach at your conference? Spurgeon's probably the greatest known preacher this country has ever known. 
Uh, he came from a very average background, though. Uh, he was very anti-establishment. He was very short in stature and was mocked by the, uh, the, the press at the time. And they drew little cartoons of him. He was a slightly, slightly portly gentleman and, uh, and very short. He spoke with a very country, simple accent. Again, he was mocked for that most of his life. And he shouted and challenged people as he preached. Would Spurgeon be allowed to preach here at Christchurch Earlsfield? Would he be allowed to preach at Revive, our little conference of a family of churches? Questions would be asked, I think. We must not regard people according to the flesh. Or from a worldly point of view, Paul warns. Rather, Paul says, look at what he says there, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come and the old has gone, the new is here. Exclamation mark. He's so excited. Look at the scope of the gospel. It pushes us to regard believers as a new creation. Let me just say nothing less, nothing less. If you're a believer here today, you're a new creation. I know I'm British and I'm very reserved at this moment. I should be shouting, uh, you're a new creation, okay? (laughs) This is massive. And this verse is in essence the biography of everyone here who is a Christian. And it's how you should view every Christian as well. Uh, I want to kind of help us think about this. Do you remember when you first became a Christian? Remember that time? That maybe, maybe it was a moment, uh, you know, you distinctly remember a time you sat down, you prayed prayer and so on. Or it just may be a period that you know when you kind of roughly became a Christian. I can't remember the exact moment. But as a young Christian, I remember being so excited. Oh, so excited to go to church. To hear more. To be with Christians. It was just amazing. I remember my parents buying me my first NIV Bible. I looked for it last night, just before Match of the Day started. Uh, that, that's how excited I was about trying to find it. I couldn't find it. But do you know why I looked for it? Because I wanted to show you how rough all the pages were, and how so many pages have fallen out, because I just spent so much time in it. And to my shame, I was going to hold up my Bible now. I remember singing hymns when my parents stood beside me. Utterly, utterly overwhelmed. Just such joy because of what Christ has done. I remember the great evangelist Billy Graham coming to speak where I lived. uh, And and I took friends to hear him. And I just sat there so thrilled to hear the gospel being explained. And praying so much for my friends. That they would become Christians too. Most of all I think I just remember I love Jesus so much. Do you remember that time for you? When the new was here. That's what Paul is speaking of. Well, let me tell you, the new is here. If you are in Christ, he says, if you are in Christ today, the new is here. What does he mean by that? Amazing. It's such a loaded phrase. Paul uses it again and again. What does it mean to be in Christ It means that you've put your faith in him. You've just said, I trust you. I trust you, Jesus, for my life now and for eternity. That's what being a Christian is, at its most simple. You've trusted 
Jesus. He said, I'm going to put my faith in you today and every day. But as you do, you're bound to him. It's what we call a faith union. And what does it mean if you're in Christ? You're safe. You're utterly safe in his hands. He's taken the punishment that your sin deserves. You're utterly accepted by God. Because he's been pleased with the sacrifice of his son, that once for all sacrifice. You have an assurance for eternity, now and every day, because he has been raised. We're about to celebrate it on Easter Day. And if he's been raised, if you're bound to him, what's going to happen to you? You will be raised with him. And you have an inheritance that will never perish, spoil or fade. All this and lots more. I could go on and on and on. Read Ephesians chapter 1 if you want to see all the blessings that you have in Christ. All this and more if you are in Christ. And that is the story of every one of us here if we are Christians here today. Do you know what this uh, little phrase actually reads like in, in the original? It says this. If anyone is in Christ, new creation. That's it. Oh, we add a few words because we're English. But if anyone is in Christ, new creation. Can I finish with this? Live like it. Live like it. Being motivated by the fear and the love of God. We have a few moments. I think it would be good 